Today's episode covers a murder investigation, but who did it is not the question. The question is, where is he? There's still an active warrant for his arrest, and the FBI believe that he is still alive. Now, this is just a matter of finding him. I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Bradford Bishop, one of the FBI's most wanted. William Bradford Bishop Jr., who went by Bradford Bishop, was born August 1, 1936 in Pasadena, California. He went to South Pasadena High School. After high school, he received his bachelor's degree from Yale University and then a master's degree in international studies from Middlebury College in Vermont. He also received a master's degree in African studies from UCLA. Now just keep these degrees in the back of your head for a few minutes while we discuss this case. Bradford graduated from Yale in 1959 and married Annette Weiss, who was his high school sweetheart. They eventually had three sons together, and Bradford joined the United States Army, where he spent four years working in counterintelligence. Throughout his studies and career, Bradford learned to speak fluently in five languages, English, Italian, French, Croatian, and Spanish. When Bradford left the Army, he got a job with the U.S. State Department, working as a Foreign Service Officer. With this job, from 1968 to 1972, he was posted in cities such as Verona, Milan, and Florence. He then spent a few years in Africa, before he was moved back to the State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C. At this time, he was working as the Assistant Chief in the Division of Special Activities and Commercial Treaties. Now, I have no idea what that job actually does, and after Googling it, it did not help me understand any more about it, but I will say that having Chief of Special Activities in your title doesn't sound too bad. When he was stationed in D.C., he was living in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife, three sons, and his mother. From the outside, everything seemed perfect. Bradford had a good job. Annette was going back to college for her degree, and Bradford was up for a promotion. But on March 1st, 1976, Bradford learned that he was not going to get the promotion after all. When Bradford got the news that he wasn't going to get promoted, he casually told his secretary that he didn't feel well. He left the office and drove to the bank, where he withdrew several hundred dollars. He then went to the Montgomery Mall where he bought a sledgehammer and a gas can. He went to a gas station and filled up the can and his station wagon. He then went to a hardware store where he bought a shovel and a pitchfork. Bradford arrived at the house at 7.30 p.m. that night. Annette was downstairs. He used the sledgehammer to strike and kill her. His mother then returned to the home after walking the dog. Bradford struck and killed her as well. Bradford then 
walked up the stairs to the room where his three sons were sleeping. They were only 5, 10, and 14 years old. After he killed his kids, he moved all five bodies into the station wagon and began driving away. On March 2nd, 275 miles away from Bradford's home, near Columbia, North Carolina, a state forest ranger was dispatched to a fire in a densely wooded swamp area. When smoke was seen rising from the trees, when the ranger arrived, it was much more than just an out-of-hand campfire. There was a shallow grave dug with five bodies inside. Near the grave was a gas can, a pitchfork, and a shovel with a sticker from the Montgomery Mall. Back in Bethesda, Maryland, eight days later on March 10th, Bradford's neighbor contacted the police. They hadn't seen the Bishop family in several days and they were growing concerned. A detective arrived at the Bishop house and immediately noticed that there was blood on the front porch. The neighbor had a spare key to the house and gave it to the detective. The detective entered the house and everything changed. There was blood splattered across the floor and walls of the downstairs room. As the detective made his way upstairs, he found what he described as the most disturbing scene of his 12-year career. It was the children's room. The entire room was covered in blood, the floor, the walls, and there was even blood splattered on the ceiling, showing that whatever happened in there was brutal. The cops in Maryland had a disturbing scene. The troopers in North Carolina had five bodies that were burned in the woods with no ID. It took several days, but the dental records came back, positively identifying the victims in North Carolina as Bradford's wife, Annette, his mother, Labia, and his and Annette's children, William, Brenton, and Jeffrey. Once the identifications were made, the two agencies were then connected. On March 18th, Bradford's car was found abandoned about 400 miles from where the bodies were dumped at a campground in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Inside the car were dog treats, a bloody blanket, and the spare tire compartment in the trunk was filled with blood. Bradford was nowhere to be found. However, it was confirmed that he used his credit card in Jacksonville, North Carolina, right after the fire was called in, to buy tennis shoes at a sporting goods store. At the time, witnesses said that he had his dog in the store and that he may have been accompanied by another woman. However, that information was never certain. The next day, a grand jury was brought together, with the crime scene at the house, the bodies of the family being found in North Carolina, and Bradford also being confirmed to have been in North Carolina that time, and no signs of Bradford anywhere, the grand jury indicted him on five counts of first-degree murder and a few other charges. Investigators conducted extensive searches around the area where Bradford's car was located. One theory was that he may have been hiding in the woods, or that he went out there and committed suicide. They even searched the area with canines, but they were unable to locate him or any other evidence. Before we dive into where Bradford is now or what may have happened to him, we are going to briefly cover the psychology and the FBI profile of this case. In 1977, the Washington Post released an article about this case. 
they reported that Bradford never had any job-related issues. When he was passed over for the promotion, that was kind of the first hiccup that he had in his career. It was reported that his career did cause some tension in his marriage. He wanted to go back to a foreign place to work, but Annette wanted him to be home with the family. He also wanted her to be a stay-at-home mom, but she had recently started going back to school to study art at the University of Maryland. It was reported that Bradford and Annette were having financial issues, but the FBI said that it was nothing too out of the ordinary. FBI profiler John E. Douglas assisted on this case. While creating profiles on people was a relatively new thing in 1976, John would go on to interview and study people such as Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Mason, and many more. The profile that was put together was designed to help people learn about Bradford. Given his history of working all around the world, living in various places, and learning several languages, he was the perfect person to disappear anywhere around the world. But no matter where he went or what language he spoke, some things would never change, like his hobbies or the things that he liked to eat. These were the things that might stand out to someone if they saw him then could support it with the information in the profile. The FBI stated that Bradford was an avid outdoorsman. He liked to camp and hike. He knew how to fly a plane and he got his pilot's license when he was stationed in Africa. He also worked out and rode motorcycles. He liked dogs, enjoyed scotch whiskey, peanuts, and spicy foods. He had a six inch vertical scar on his lower back from a surgery, a cleft chin, and a mole on his left cheek. He also had a history of depression and insomnia. It was also believed that he had his diplomatic passport with him. Back at the house, all of his family passports were located, except for his. Bradford had about a week head start before anyone started looking for him. The FBI said that Bradford had his counterintelligence training in the 1960s, which may have helped him evading detection in 1976. Since Bradford disappeared, there have been numerous reported sightings of him all over the world, but three of them are considered to be the most credible. In June of 1978, a Swedish woman said that she met Bradford when she was on a business trip in Ethiopia. She stated that she was absolutely certain that it was Bradford Bishop. At the time that she was there, she had no idea that he was wanted for murder in the United States. In January 1979, a co-worker from the State Department reported that he saw Bradford in Sorrento, Italy, while in a restroom. He said that Bradford had a beard then, but when he saw him up close, he knew who it was. He even asked, hey, you're Brad Bishop, aren't you? The man in the restroom responded in an American accent, oh no, and ran out the restroom. The third credible sighting report took place on September 19, 1994 in Switzerland. Someone that lived in Bradford's neighborhood back in Maryland was on vacation and believed that they saw Bradford on a train platform. They were only a few feet from him and he looked well-groomed. The neighbor didn't interact with him and he got into a car. Years began going by with no positive information on where Bradford was or what he was doing. In 2010, the FBI developed information that he was in Italy somewhere else in Europe, or possibly even California, working as a teacher. 
The FBI believed that with his experience, Bradford could be living in plain sight, living a normal life under a completely new identity. In 2014, a forensic artist created an age progression sculpture of what Bradford may look like at 77 years old. You can see photos of these sculptures on my Instagram or Facebook page at Crime Nerds Podcast. In April of 2014, Bradford was placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. He was removed in 2018. He wasn't located and there wasn't any information that he died. The FBI was just adding another person to the list that had a more recent case. It's very possible that Bradford Bishop is still alive and among us. He would be 85 years old. But we're going to go back to March of 1976, the same month that Bradford murdered his family. Only eight hours away from the Bishop House in Massachusetts, 18-year-old Kathy Gilchrist was being crowned Miss Stofton. Little did she know that as she was accepting this award, around the same time, a horrific crime was being committed. A crime that at the time she would have no idea that she would ever be connected to one day. See, Kathy was adopted as a baby. She told NBC Washington News that she always felt so lucky because she was chosen by her family. That was the way she saw her life growing up. She lived with a great family that wanted her. She never put much thought into finding her birth parents. That was until she started getting close to retirement in 2021. Kathy did a DNA test with 23andMe, and with some other testing and follow-ups and connecting to other people, it all led back to one name. Her father, William Bradford Bishop. When she did a Google search on the name, she learned that he was one of the FBI's most wanted. The FBI even got involved in this family tree to verify. A direct test was done with Kathy's DNA to DNA that was left from evidence from the crime scenes, which did completely confirm that Kathy was Bradford's daughter. To this day, it's still unknown who her biological mother is. The FBI released a statement saying that this was a huge break. In a 45-year-old case, it showed part of Bradford that no one ever knew before. Kathy would have been born when Bradford was still at Yale, and it's not known if he ever even knew that he had a daughter. This case was featured on The Hunt with John Walsh, where Bradford was described as a sociopathic, cold-blooded, narcissistic killer and a horrible, coward bully. And this is almost going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Before you go, I have one quick message. I'm starting a fan club slash Patreon page for just $5 a month. You'll get two extra episodes. I have a few goals with this. For one, it will help with supporting the show with monthly costs and helping get equipment to hopefully produce better quality shows. I also have ideas for other podcasts that this would help produce to include a history podcast, fictional podcast that centers around mystery stories and a few other ideas. And then most importantly, I want to use a portion of the money to give back. Right now, the two organizations I'm looking at are the hotline.org, which helps domestic violence survivors, 
The other organization is End Violence Against Women International, which was founded in 2003 by a retired San Diego police officer with the goal of providing training for sexual assault investigations to law enforcement officers. Together, we can bring awareness to cases, help support victims, and the people who are investigating these crimes. Now, I'm very thankful for each person who listens to this podcast. Your support, it really does mean a lot to me. And thank you for listening.